home, we're grumpy, we kick the cat, we shout at the husband or the wife or the kids. And uh, more than that, inside us, there's, there's a sense of insecurity. And that's been our experience all our lives. When on the outside, we seem to be a together person, and you all seem very together people. Um, and yet inside, actually from our childhood, we've not known what it is to be on, at ease with ourselves and then with others. And at work, you know, there's this person who really irritates us and we crash <laughs> repeatedly on it. And there's habits that we just can't break. And people maybe don't know about it, but on the inside, there's kind of a little child crying out, I need to be loved, I need to be appreciated, and I feel really insecure. And that's emotional and relational. Let's go on, oh, let's go on to the next one. To which you might say, well, Okay, and the little phrase that I want to add on to that is that we're actually held back. We want to move on, but somehow we seem to be stuck <laughs> in one particular place, internally and relationally. So you might say, well, that's all very, all sounds very psychobabble to me, frankly, and this Freud stuff gets in the way. Is it in the Bible? Well, you only have to open virtually every page, any page on the Bible, and you'll come across it. Let me give you a few Examples, you know, from Adam and Eve onwards. Um, fast forward a little bit to the Israelites. Remember, they were in the wilderness and the desert, and ten times they grumbled against Moses and significantly against God. They were immature. Saul, you remember King Saul? And how he, he, it's, he was actually very, it says, very small in his own eyes. His self-image, if you like, in our terms today, was very small. And so even though he was a great physical stature, emotionally he was a baby. And he crashed. His, and that's really important if you're the king. Here's Peter. Well, Peter's a, a case study in his own right, isn't it? I just picked out one of few examples. He just said to Jesus, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. A huge breakthrough. And Jesus says, on this Little rock, I'm going to build my church, the rock. Wow! And the next thing we find him saying when Jesus says, and by the way, I have to die, and uh, Peter comes up to Jesus, no, you don't. That's not the way it's going to happen. And what does Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. Whoa! Why? Because Peter was in his immaturity giving space to the enemy. Uh, they're in Gethsemane. Do you remember Peter and the others? They fall asleep. And Jesus says, this is my hour of need. I really need you to be with me. And they couldn't do that. And then, of course, worse of all, he denies him three. You can't get much worse than that, can you? Well, Judas, perhaps. But it is the immaturity. Immatur he loved Jesus, but not uh, in an adult way. The, I could go on and on and on as I often do, uh, but in the early church, the rest, see, the early church was not this wonderful, perfect group of people. They were as messed up as anybody else. And uh, the Corinthian church is a good case in point. And if we had time, by the way, the, the kind of theme passage for this talk is Ephesians chapter 4. You're going to have to go and 
read it. It's the passage that begins, verse 11, that God has given us apostles, prophets, the rest of it, to equip the saints to do the ministry. And then he goes on, so, so that we might be built up and that we might go on to mature manhood, womanhood, humanhood. That's what it means to be mature. So that, that go away and read Ephesians chapter 12. But here's another passage, 1 Corinthians 3. And he says, I am, you should be um, grown-ups by now, but you're a bunch of babies. I need to feed you with milk. Anyway, he's got loads and loads and loads. Here is just um, a few to keep you going. And he's always talking about growing up and putting off the old and going into the new. What he's talking about is moving from immaturity, from babyhood as Christians, right through to maturity. And we'll think a little bit more about that. Okay, so here's the thing. We do not become mature, whatever that means, humanly and spiritually, unless we are secure. Basically, in other words, comfortable in our own skin. And many of us are not comfortable in our own skin. I remember I was brought up in a Christian home. My mum and dad loved Jesus. I was taken to three services, as you did in the 60s, every Sunday. So that made me a really good Christian. Usually made me a bit of an angry person. Um, and uh, my, my mum was very tactile, loving. That's where I get it from. And uh, she's a very warm person. My dad was your classic male father British. Obviously, nobody in this room, but, you know, classically, um, who is emotionally distant. He was an only child. His dad being in the Marines, he, did, he really didn't like his mum, who was a bit narcissistic. And so he grew up to, to contain his emotions. And when he met his wife, my mum, he focused everything on her but he didn't have much space for anything else. And he wasn't very good at saying, I love you, and of showing, I love you, in a physical way. He did it by earning the bread. He was a teacher and bringing it home. That was it. You get the picture? Familiar? So many of us. And so as a Christian, as I grew, um, my role models were my mum and my dad, of course. And so the warmth of my mum really helped me. But when I left home, came to London as a student, I... My problem was I knew about a lot about God because, you know, I was brought up in the Brethren. They teach the Bible pretty well. Uh, so I had the knowledge of God and of Jesus, but somehow I didn't have the experience of him, the reality of him. Do you understand what I'm saying? And so I remember coming, coming home from uh, college one day in tears, crying on my, you know, you had a room in, in student accommodation, on my bed, and crying out, Jesus, where are you? In tears. And it was, I, I would like to say, I then had this bolt of light. And God spoke to me and said, I am with you, go. It didn't happen quite like that. But over those next few years, a couple of years of my early student life, I began a growing, growing sense. Until one day, I kind of went, step, we were on holiday, I stepped out into the country, and suddenly I knew that I knew that Jesus was with me. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's a no. And actually, that comes through pain, usually. It's through crying out and saying, where are you, classically. Anyway, maturity develops out of security. So appearances can be 
except Felix, a fine young man, doesn't he? But what we're like on the inside, there's a little boy crying, still crying. You know, this guy's, what, 28 years old, and yet inside there's this little boy crying out, so I don't know who I am, and I don't know who you are, and I don't know what to do. Please help. Please show me you love me. Please tell me that you're there for me. Which is what little children say. But the little child is still there. So here's the thing. Maturity doesn't come overnight, does it? By definition. In fact, it takes experience to become experienced, doesn't it? Which sounds like an obvious statement. So you think, well, if I'm... um, in a plane flying to Australia, I really hope that the pilot has a bit of experience, hasn't just popped into the pilot seat and said, oh, I think I'll try this. I know I've got 300 people in the plane, but we'll see how it goes. You really need to have somebody who's had experience. So, um, you can't become experienced in something except through experience, some of which will be quite painful, some of it will be very joyful. But... The point that follows is that we may be experienced, but that in itself does not mean we're going to become mature. So it's good to be experienced, but actually what happens in order for us to become mature? Well, we could be 80 years old, we could go gone to church for all our lives, and yet still be emotionally a child. And... Um, the difference between someone who's experienced and is mature and the person who's experienced and is not mature is the choices they made every day of their life. So when faced with a reversal, a disappointment, a this, a that or the other, rejection by people, the choice we make on the inside as well as the outside will orientate us in a particular direction. If we keep going in that direction, we will end up there as opposed to there, which is, of course, the story of Israel through the whole of the Old Testament. It's true of all of us. I'd love to read out Corinthians 3 and Hebrews 5, but you'll have to read it afterward just for the sake of time. But basically, it's saying the same thing. I wanted to be able... I wanted to be able to engage with you as adults, but I can't, says Paul in the Apostle. Why? Because we're still children. (laughs) We've been involved in church and in leading churches for many, many years, over the years. And uh, the picture has always come to my mind um, that those who are leading, hopefully they've got some maturity and there are others who have got maturities. And yet, so often in our churches, actually there are relatively few um, adults. And the adults, by the way, could be making the tea and working with the kids, not just people here. <laughs> it's anybody who's chosen to go on with God and grow and change. But so often, uh, many of us are content just, just to come along, just to be um, involved with church, which is a wonderful thing. But actually, when it, we're faced with the choices every day of our lives, which way will we choose? There are key questions, aren't there? Ouch. Okay, just three models and three frameworks that might help us in this. Number one, 
Maturity comes in stages because that's how it works with human beings. It's true developmentally, it's true spiritually. Stage one, emotionally and spiritually, it's the same, um, is the infant. When you're first born, when you first become a Christian, let's stick with the physical development for a minute. And, oh, there you go. And um, the task, if I can put it this way, of a baby, an infant or a toddler, is to receive. In fact, to start with, that's all they can do, isn't it? All they can do is suck and cry and poo. That's pretty much it, isn't it? For the first few weeks, if not months, sometimes years. Uh, and their job as an infant is to look into the face of mum, dad, and whoever's caring for them and receive, well, to receive that sparkle in the eye and the message that comes, all the oogie-woogie-woogie noises that you do with babies because they can't speak English yet anyway, but we're there and we're communicating. It's mostly nonverbal. It's in the eyes and it's in the face and it says, I love you. You're the delight of my life and they receive joy, or filled with joy. They receive love and they grow in joy. Now that begs a few questions, doesn't it? Because if you've experienced that to a greater extent from your parents when you were an infant and a toddler and a young child, well, they call it technically, you become securely attached. You're a secure person. It begs the question as to whether I received that and if I didn't receive it, What's the issue? Well, let's put that on one side for a minute. Just simply say that when that happens, that gives us that sense of security that lasts for a whole life. And of course, if we don't, then often what can happen is we can grow up physically, but inside we're still like that infant crying out, do you love me? Do you care? And that sense of insecurity. We could dwell on these things for a long time, but I'll keep moving. That, instantly is the most important one. It's like a building. It's the bottom layer, the foundation, and it's true in the brain, how it works. If that is sound and secure, of course, the whole building is. If it isn't, then we struggle in all the other areas. Moving on, the child, of course, learns to take care of itself, um, and learns to take begin to take responsibility for their own lives. And the lack of that, of course, means um, that those things don't develop, that we don't have control of ourselves. We don't begin to take responsibility. We're, uh, and on into adulthood, we, we're like the adult child and so on. And then into adulthood, stability, responsibility, let's go through these quickly. And of course, if not, then it's like we're still a teenager. You know, the angst of teenage. I'm glad I got through teenage. It was great at the time, but I'm happy to have moved on. But if you're stuck emotionally in that, it means you don't get through that. And you need other people. As my experience was that because my dad didn't affirm me, verbally or non-verbally, I was always looking to others, especially older men, to give me what I didn't have. And they couldn't. They weren't required to. Bosses, church leaders, and all the rest of it. Growing, and, and then we move on. Of course, the um, physically, 
It's a matter of having a family, offspring, but spiritually and emotionally, it's the parallel thing as well. That actually, it, to be an effective parent, we need to be sacrificially given to other people, don't we, our kids? But the same is true as human beings, as church people, spiritually. Somebody once said, the main task in life is to get myself out of the way so that I can be of some earthly use to other people. What he meant by that was, so that I move beyond the child and the teenage within, the angst and the insecurity, so that I can actually begin to think of other. We, not me, somebody's put it. We, not me. So it's an other's focus. Jesus was, was and is the most emotionally secure person the world has ever known. That enabled him. Why? Because of his attachment to his father. This gave him security, so he was able ultimately to even go to the cross. So finally, here's one that I think is, again, each of these requires you know, a lot on their own right, so forgive me flashing through them. But I think it's something that is really not talked about in society, not even really talked about in the church. You know, when people talk about elders in the church, they usually think of a leadership team or a group of people, and they you know, decide what's going to happen, etc., but I think there's something more to eldership in community. And I just throw this, I'd love us to kind of now get into groups and talk about this, because that's usually what I try and do. Um, what do we mean by an elder amongst God's people? Not simply the leader kind of idea, but somebody who's moved through the stages emotionally and spiritually and is now able, not thinking just of only their own immediate group, we, not me, but able to be like parents are to a whole community. They're not necessarily leaders, but they're people who are able to be given to others. And I think we're missing that in our community, in our society, aren't we? Leave alone our church. They're people who are not kind of, who are secure on the inside, able not to be thinking about their own issues all the time, but able to sacrificially the second one actually comes from Carl Jung, that well-known Christian leader. No, I, he, um, you know, he had some funny issues, but he came up with something that was quite interesting. He talked about the first half of life. Chronologically, it's not a chronological thing, but it might be into, you know, 30s, 40, whatever. And most of the issues that we're concerned about is what do I look like? Am I going to have relationships? Am I going to have a security, a job, a career? Da 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 da. And I'm, that's appropriate. Am I going to make my mark? How do I form relationships? Am I going to grow? But then he says, that, uh, and most of that is intentional. But then he says the second laugh, half of life is different. At least it is if you've moved through, it's a bit like those stages, and come to a point where now you discover. He, he talks about. It is it's like this. It's like the first half of life is concerned with making the container. But the second half of life is more concerned with the contents of it. And if I have a drink of water, I'm not crunching the, the, the cup. I'm actually I'm drinking the contents, aren't I? Or eating it kind of thing. I think it's quite a powerful picture. And that is what life is about. It's more about the contents than just the container. And uh, 
a man called Richard Rohr quotes him, he says this, or he applies it, he says, we are a first half of life culture, largely concerned about surviving successfully. We all try to do what seems the task that first life gives us, identity, home, all those different things, proper platform, which is okay in, in a sense, but all of our culture, he says, is orientated to these kind of things. What do I look like? What's my identity, my sexuality, my relationship forming, blah, blah, blah. <coughs> and they take over. Success, security, containment, looking good to ourselves. You get, get the drift of it. So it's a little bit kind of taking those stages and, and putting them in a, in a different way. But it's the same principle, isn't it? Have I been able to move beyond the me bit into the you and the we bit? Which is what love is, isn't it? And uh, a mature person, you could summarize it in a number of ways. One way of summarizing a mature person is somebody who's not so concerned about themselves that they don't have time for others. In fact, they're somebody who listens more than they talk and gives space to other people to be themselves. You know those people you can go into the room and the room is full of them and their issues and their ego and their life and there's a place for that but there's a bit too much of that so often and the mature person because God is pretty mature isn't he and he has to listen to us a great deal doesn't he and he gives space that's what a mature person and I think that's what an elder does Somebody who's there for other people is not going on about their own issues, but able to give space. The final one, I'll show it all. Again, it really is Schizero's thing itself. And he says, as we grow, it's the same idea. We grow as young, we teenage, we whatever, got a job, whatever, these first half of life things. And then he says, all about achieving. And then we hit what he calls the wall. It's loss. It's disappointment, it's the diagnosis, it's the friend who dies, it's the being made redundant, the rejection in um, relationship, the loss of a friend or family member, all these kind of things, it's the wall, we hit it. We all hit the wall and sometimes we hit several pretty much at the same time. We're going it through li life is like that, we hit the wall. How we then respond determines the course of the rest of our life. And I'm, you're probably sitting there, and I, it's a good thing to do that, thinking about the walls that you've hit in life. I can think of plenty in my life. Often they have to do with relationships. And then what he says is, depending on res our response, the journey inwards is like a place is carved out within that's deeper, it's carved out by the pain, actually. And how we then continue to live our lives outwardly is dependent on how the journey's gone inwardly. You've probably heard enough, haven't you, what stage you had at. Uh, I'd love to, this is the, the next talk, okay, is what to do. <laughs> um, I'll just tell one story. Growing relationship, we had stand in the river. Which, uh, Anne and I were at Tower Bridge, weren't we, about four or five years ago. And I remember we had a great talk about um, our family, our heritage, 
my parents, her grandparents, and, and loads of things, and especially in a, in a Christian, in a spiritual sense. And the more we talked about it, the more excited we were, the more positive we felt, notwithstanding all the mistakes that people had made. And it was like we were flowing in a, so this is the metaphor I used, uh, like we're in a stream, in a river. And that river is our forebears, it's the generations of Christians, it's all kinds of things that are going for us. And it's like you plant yourself in the river and you allow that river to carry you, to uh, lift you up, to bear you up. And I said later that that was a really helpful thought. And it's one that I've often thought, especially when we're worshipping, but other times I often standing when we're worshipping, and I just like to think of myself standing in the river, receiving, just enjoying. And we don't do enough of that. It's like that infant with uh, the mum who cares and looking in the face. And this time we're looking to the face of God. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance, face, upon you and give you peace, shalom. That's that high priestly prayer. And it's one that we could easily... And actually, that's the essence of it. We don't have to pray long prayers. don't have to know lots of Bible verses. Standing in the place or sitting in the place when we're looking... Because Jews looked up when they prayed. They didn't do any of this. Illustrative or the fact they were looking into the face of the person who loved them because they loved them. That's the, that's the heart of it. There's a whole load more, of course, but that is at the heart of it. You've heard enough of me, I think. So let's take a moment. I'll hand back to uh, Mike, but...